God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this chance to get together to worship you and celebrate you and enjoy you and hear from you. God, you have given us this gift of community, this gift of relationship where we get to not only engage with you, not only worship you, uh, but engage with one another, to hear one another, to strengthen one another and hold one another up and lift one another up, uh, to have real and honest and genuine conversations and interactions to allow one another to walk with us in the good and the bad and to strengthen each other as we all uh, seek to pursue growing in knowing you, becoming Christ-like and proclaiming Christ. That is what we want to do here. That's who we are, and we do that together as a community. God, we thank you for for Grace Place and for those volunteers. Lord, we pray for the kids of our church, um, the ones that are here and the ones who aren't, that you would watch over them them safe and lord i pray that you would reveal yourself to them that you would save them at an early age that they might walk with you for a long long time help the leaders uh, and volunteers to give them an extra dose of encouragement of patience of joy this morning as they uh, teach and reflect the way that you know and love the kids of this church to them in the way that they interact with each other and with uh, the kids of grace place god as we open your word this morning um Lord, you have uh, a word for us today, for each one of us individually. There is a reason we're here. There's a reason we're in this chapter. There's a reason we showed up today. There's a reason you got us here, because it would be for a lot of us a lot easier to just stay home. But you got us here today for a reason. And so, God, I pray that you would um, help us to set aside the distractions, help us to set aside the things that can keep us from hearing from you, the things that we allow to creep in, that this time would be set aside for you. God, we came here this morning to engage with you, and so as we open your word, help us to do that. Lord, as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus' name, his name, amen. All right, so we are in Acts 23. We've been walking through this for almost a year on and off for better part of a year, and we are getting close to the end. Um, We're going to cover a lot of ground here this morning. I want to give us a brief overview, review of where we're at uh, together, and there is a reoccurring theme that has happened in the last few chapters, is that Paul gets to Jerusalem, um, and some chaos erupts caused by some Jews from Asia, from Ephesus, that have come up to Jerusalem as well for the Pentecost celebration. Some chaos has erupted. And there is no clear idea why, but Paul is the bad guy. That's what everybody decides. Paul's the bad guy, even though there's no clear understanding as to why that is. Paul then speaks with some Roman guards. He has a couple of conversations with them. And it's clear to them that whatever is going on between Paul and these Jewish groups, it's a religious matter. It's not a political one. But again, there's no clear idea as to why Paul is the bad guy. The Sanhedrin, the mix of Sadducees and Pharisees, the leaders, the elders of the temple, get together to have a conversation with Paul. (coughs) Excuse me. And in the midst of that, confusion erupts within the elder board. There's infighting. A literal fist fight breaks out in the midst of that conversation. And once again, there is no clear idea why Paul is the bad guy. Amidst all of this, Jesus shows up to Paul and he tells him, Paul, I want you to take courage. You will get to Rome. Be strong. Hold on. You're going to get to Rome. 
Jesus confirms for Paul, look, there is a plan, there's a goal, and you will testify of the gospel in Rome. This is what I want you to hold on to this morning. We're going to look at a couple of different things, talk about a few different topics, but eventually we're going to land at this point. The Bible is full of promises from God to us. Promises for the good days, promises for the joyful days, and promises for the hard, exhausting, overwhelming days. That's the point I want you to hold on to. Take it, keep it in your hand, put it in your pocket. We'll come back to it later, but that is our big takeaway for this morning. So after Jesus speaks to Paul, after he shows up while Paul is in prison and tells him, just hold on, Paul, because you're going to get to Rome. The next day, a plan is hatched that has to do with Paul. And so we're going to pick it up in verse 12 of chapter uh, 23. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he becomes known. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered barracks and told Paul, Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and, going aside, asked him privately, What is that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him, you have, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. We're going to stop right there. So an obstacle has arisen, an obstacle of an oath. We aren't told in verse 12 exactly who it is that makes this oath, but it would seem it was some more of the more zealous Jews who were against whatever it is they believe that Paul had done. They have now taken things a step further. This group was about 40 plus. They make a vow to neither eat nor drink till Paul has been killed. And so they go to the priests and elders with their plan. Now I'd assume that when they say they're going to the priests and elders, they're not talking to the Pharisees because we saw when the Sadducees and the Pharisees met together, the Pharisees actually said, we find no fault in Paul. They're actually sympathetic to his situation. But they want the elders to come up with a bogus claim, a bogus request for another meeting with Paul. They want them to go tell the Roman authorities that you want to meet with Paul one more time to really clear this thing up, to come to a conclusion. On the way to that meeting, if we get him out from the barracks, if we get him out from out in the open, there will be a group of us who will ambush him and kill him. Now, if we look at this from the Roman perspective, if this plays out, the last time Paul stood before this council, it ended with the council itself getting into a fistfight so, so huge that the soldiers had to remove Paul from the situation because he might get attacked, not even because they wanted to hurt him in that moment, but because the fighting was so bad amongst these elders. So if the Romans brought Paul to another one of these meetings, he would be heavily guarded. 
Say what you will about the Romans and the way that they ran things, the way they ruled. Their ultimate goal always is peace within the places that they had control over. They want peace and order and quiet. We've seen this play out because multiple times it's been the Romans who have saved Paul from mob mentality. So if this plan were actually carried out, Paul would be heavily guarded. And this group would try and attack, and it would inevitably end with more bloodshed than just Paul's. See, this group doesn't really care about what happens to anybody else. They're looking for violence and death, and they don't really care about the consequences or who else gets hurt. Anger can be a dangerous thing. Anger in itself is not bad. Psalm 4 and Ephesians 4 both tell us, be angry and do not sin. You can be angry. You can be angry with situations. You can be angry with people. You can be angry with God. Be angry and do not sin. How will you respond with your anger? How do you direct it or use it or, more likely, let it use you? Why were these people so angry with Paul? Right, The group that has started all of this is the group from Ephesus. They came 60-some miles. They chased Paul from Ephesus to Jerusalem. They have chased him over and over again. They have held on to this anger and rage. What is it that they are so angry about? Because remember, the charges that they brought against him in chapter 22, the charges that they have brought against Paul, they aren't real. He hasn't actually done any of the things that he has been charged and they have, <clears throat> the things they have claimed. He didn't bring any Gentiles into the temple. He wasn't teaching against the customs of the Jews. So again, why are they so angry? What has he actually done? It's kind of a similar situation to Jesus and what he dealt with in Jerusalem and his final Passover. Pilate was perplexed by Jesus. He kept asking Jesus and asking the crowd, What has he done? I find no fault in this man. Why are you so bent on having him dead? The tribune was just as perplexed when it came to Paul. He doesn't understand why the crowd hated him so much, why they wanted his head. Even the Pharisees said, I find no fault with him. So what is it? Why do they hate Paul? I think Jesus gives us a little bit of an insight in John 15. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Okay, so Jesus was hated. Jesus was rejected. So what, what does that have to do with Paul, and furthermore, what does that have to do with us? Well, Paul tells the Galatians in Galatians 2.20, right? We memorized it a few weeks ago. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. For the person who is actually and truly unified with Christ, identified with Christ, in relationship with Christ, then the hatred and rejection of Christ will inevitably become a hatred and rejection of the Christian. Why do they hate Paul? Because they hated Jesus. Why do so many hate the church, hate Christianity, hate Christians? Because they hate Jesus. Now, they might not come out and say it that way, but that's the idea. Who do those Christians think they are? 
It's too narrow. Jesus is the only way to God. It's too exclusive. It's too judgy. No, I want choices. I want opportunities. I want to be able to pick and choose the parts of faith and spirituality that I like that suit my already predetermined view of the life, and I want it to just support me. I want a Jesus. I want a faith that just supports whatever decision I want to make. To hold to a faith in Jesus, a belief in the Bible, to follow the morality and instruction of Scripture in this day, in this world, in this city, is to put you at odds and in conflict with a world that hates the idea of any situation or belief system that involves condemnation, judgment, or some type of exclusivity to it. We see it play out around the world. Because around the world, there are entire countries where our brothers and sisters don't use microphones, don't have big lights, don't have lit up signs outside. But with the softest of whispers, they worship their Lord and Savior with a zeal that far outshines the voice they are allowed to use. Because they are in places gathered together where if they are found, they're dead on the spot because of their faith. For Paul and for anyone who has identified with Christ, who has identified themselves with the person and work of Jesus, to embrace that is to embrace the rejection he faced. If the world didn't like Jesus and didn't like his message and his presence, and he was perfect and good and holy, we will for sure receive some pushback and rejection to some degree for our relationship with Jesus. And so this group of 40 or so men take this oath, and the plan is laid out. If they can get Paul out, he may very well be a sitting duck. We can put this to an end. If not, for some of Paul's family to show up. Specifically, his nephew shows up. We don't know anything about Paul's family. This is the one of the very few little details we get about Paul's family life. Paul apparently has a sister. Apparently, he's got a nephew. And somehow this nephew finds out about this plot. We don't know his name. We don't know his age. We don't know how he got the news. We don't know how connected he was to Paul. Was this like they hung out all the time or like a Christmas and Easter kind of relationship? We don't know nothing. And a lot of people spend way too much time trying to pick and choose and figure out a way to give this guy identity. The Bible doesn't give him any identity beyond he's Paul's nephew. And so this unknown nephew tells Paul, I heard this is going to happen. Paul gets one of the guards to escort the nephew to the tribune, to the commander of the army to tell him the news. The game of telephone continues. The tribune actually hears the news and sends away the nephew, telling him, don't share this information with anyone else. And now this leader of the Roman army has a decision to make. This Paul has been a headache, has caused an uproar. Whether or not he's guilty of anything, he is clearly at the center of all kinds of confusion and chaos, and he has a decision to make. He can send Paul into this trap. He can be done with the conflict and headaches among the Jews. They will finally quiet down if we just let him get their bloodshed. Or he can protect Paul and continue to pursue what is legally the best course of action. Paul is clearly not safe in Jerusalem anymore. If Paul, a Roman citizen, were to get assassinated while under Roman guard, the tribune would be in serious trouble, and he wants to be done with all of this. So, like any good politician, he just passes the buck. He decides to go overboard on protection. He gets a strong, heavy escort to get Paul out of town, to send Paul to Caesarea, where the governor Felix can handle the situation. 
He also decides we're going to do this at night. In the middle of the night, we're going to send Paul heavily guarded on a horse. They're going to get a lot of time, and they're going to get a head start on these people who want him dead. The Tribune also sends a letter to be sent with Paul on this trip. And in that letter, we actually find his name. His name's Lysias. Who knew? And in verse 27, we see that he sends him with this letter. And in verse 27 in the letter, he tells, this, uh, he tells the governor Felix this. He says, so the tribune came and said to him, uh, sorry, wrong chapter. There you go. Uh, 27. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them and the soldiers and rescued him, having learned he was a Roman citizen. So Lysias sends this letter. He sends Paul with all these guards, and he sends this letter to Felix. He says, this is what's going on, Governor Felix. This man was seized by the Jews. He was getting beaten. They were going to kill him, but I rescued him because I found out he was a Roman citizen, and so I protected him from the angry mob. If you've been around the last couple of weeks, that's a little bit of revisionist history. Because Lysias didn't find out that Paul was a Roman citizen until he had already had him chained up and had him extended chained to a wall, ready to have him flogged and beaten to death. But Lysias just kind of hides that. He kind of retells the tale so that he's the hero of the story. But he admits in this letter that he sends to Felix that Paul has done nothing deserving death or imprisonment. Yet, he's still in prisoner of Rome. But he says he hasn't actually done anything. He's not actually been found guilty of anything. And so the guards get Paul to Caesarea by night. They get him, and he meets Felix. Felix decides that Paul will be held in Herod's praetorium until his accusers arrive from Jerusalem. We're going to have ourselves another court case. We're going to have another sit-down conversation, but we're going to wait. And so he holds him off in Herod's praetorium, Herod's, Herod's palace, really. The praetorium is basically, it's an offset, it's a, it's a meeting place, a gathering place. And while Paul is under Roman guard, at least this time he's not chained to a wall or chained to a soldier. I mean, he's still a prisoner, but the situation's a lot better for him than it's been the last couple of times he's been arrested. And so Paul stands before Felix, and some of the elders come down from Jerusalem, and they bring with them a spokesperson named Tertullius. He addresses Felix in chapter 24, and he lays it on real thick in regards to the -the over-the-top flattery when it comes to the governor. It says in chapter 24, verse 1, After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullius. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullius began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. Felix, you're the greatest. You're the best in every possible way. And let's forget the fact that we're technically, you know, slaves of the sort to the Roman Empire. We have no real identity and we can't really, we can only extend so high into the world. But you're awesome. You're great. Let me tell you why this guy's the worst. As for this guy in verse 5, he says, he's a plague. He's caused riots. He's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he tried to profane our temple. He's a plague. He's a pest a constant source of trouble and annoyance. And we know how you Romans hate trouble and annoyance. He's attacking the peace that we just talked about, Felix. You have created such a great job of. He's trying to attack your leadership, Felix. He causes riots. In actuality, he preaches a message, and what happens is that people get offended, right? Paul brings the gospel, and then people get angry at him. But he's not actually starting a riot. He's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. 
Nazareth had a terrible reputation, even with the Romans. It's a nowhere town, and nothing and no one good comes from it. That was the general thought. At times, Christians were referred to as the Nazarenes, because that's where Jesus' hometown was from, right? And that's the one verse when you hear Nazarene, I can't believe, does anything good come out of Nazareth? That's what someone said about Jesus. Because that was the idea. Whether you were a Jew or a Roman, you knew Nazareth was nothing. Except Jesus comes from that place. And so these Christians were followers of Jesus, and so they were oftentimes referred to as the Nazarenes. Though here it's an attempt at an insult. Here it was about trying to connect with the negative connotation that Nazareth kept. And most of all, he's tried to profane our temple. We talked about how the seriousness of this charge, that if a Gentile crossed into the inner temple of the Jews, even the Romans allowed Roman citizens to be killed under penalty of this. But notice he says he tried to profane our temple. Originally, back in chapter 21, 22, the story was he had already done it. He had already brought Gentiles into the temple. But that charge was bogus, had no credibility, got shot down in the courts in Jerusalem. So now Tertullius says, well, yeah, he didn't actually do it. He tried to do it, but he was stopped. We stopped him before he could actually, he attempted to do it. He had a plan to do it, but we stopped him. It's a lot harder to prove or disprove that. Felix, there's clearly a reason he got arrested in the first place. See for yourself, Tertullius says. Ask him. See what... Ask him about the things we accuse him of. And that's a bold strategy, because the last time that the temple elders had Paul speak in a more formal setting, he got the elders to fight each other. And now Tertullius' whole defense is, let Paul talk. And so Paul replies in verse 10. And when the governor nodded for him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Felix, you've been in charge of this place for a long time. You know what's going on. You know of the conflict between the Christians and the Jews, so i got no problem addressing you about this. And so Paul gives a recount of his version of what happened. He says it was 12 days ago he showed up in Jerusalem. He didn't start any fights or any arguments. He barely had any time. He showed up 12 days ago, and he's been locked up for about four days. He had about eight days. He couldn't start this kind of revolution they're blaming him for. While Tertullius used vague concepts and flattery, Paul just said, there's no proof of what they accuse me of. If there was, this wouldn't have even made it to you. This would have gotten handled in Jerusalem. But clearly, there's no evidence. Though Paul does say in verse 14, he says, I, This I do confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, and believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Paul does say, look, I do worship, and I worship the same God that my accusers worship. He does so according to the way, according to the fulfillment of the promises and the hope of the Messiah found in the arrival of Jesus Christ. That through his death and resurrection, all, the, all that the prophets and the law had written about will be fulfilled. Paul even says, like I said in verse 15, we have the same hope in God of the resurrection of the just and the unjust, that that day will you stand before God. Only some will stand on their own righteousness, only some will stand on their own accord, and then others will stand and their sins paid for by the blood of Jesus. Paul gives more details about what happened in Jerusalem. He says, I showed up there after being away for many years to give alms and to worship. 
right? As Paul has been traveling to these different churches over the last couple of years, he's been collecting alms. Remember when he was sent out way back, years and years beforehand, when he was sent out by the church in Antioch, they told him, don't forget the poor and the needy. And that's what Paul has been doing as he's been planting these churches and then going back and visiting these churches, he's been collecting offerings from them. And he brings it back to Jerusalem here during the celebration of Pentecost so that the church can then disperse the funds around. And so he says, I came to be able to do that. I came to worship. I came to give alms. And while in the temple, I was, went through the purification system. There were no issues. There were no riots. I wasn't debating anyone. And then some of the Jews from Asia, from Ephesus, they were the ones who started this whole mess. They claimed that I did something wrong. You know what? They should be here to accuse me or at least be witnesses. They're not even here for this. They're the ones who started this mess. And so Paul ends his speech by asking, look, can we just get some clearer reason for why I'm here? Give me a clearer reason for the trouble I find myself in beyond the fact that I believe in the resurrection and some of the leaders don't. It's not a crime, that's just a disagreement. Now before we move any further in this and get to Felix's response, I want to consider for a minute where we are with Paul. Paul is getting beaten by an angry mob in Jerusalem. For maybe doing something, maybe not. He didn't actually do anything, but they get so angry, they're put in the boots team. And who is it that rescues Paul from that angry mob? It was the Roman guards. The people who, if you read the New Testament, if ever there's a bad guy in the New Testament, it's the Romans. And yet they're the ones who save Paul. They're the ones that the Jews want to be freed of. They're the ones who crucify Jesus, and yet they're the ones who protect Paul. It is their power and authority and desire for peace within their land. that That's the reason Paul is saved from the mob. And he's saved multiple times over. God is the one who created and allows governments to reign and rule. They receive their authority from God in the sense that God allows them to have some authority and power on earth. And it is because of God's allowance of the Roman occupation that the, and the hard-fisted way that they did rule that, brought, that Paul is brought into the barracks and kept from being attacked. And then in the midst of all this confusion, when he's about to be beaten, he reveals he's a Roman citizen. He's spared a horrific beating because of his background, because of his upbringing. And the whole mood changes for him. A relative that we have not heard about, that we don't know the name of, some random relative hears about a plot to kill Paul. And Paul is able to get that message to the tribune. And he is heavily guarded and escorted out of the city. Yes, Paul is still in chains, but now he is still alive. He's standing before a major Roman authority figure by and through the work of God in the circumstances of everyday regular decision-making. God works in the supernatural, in the awe-inspiring, in the amazing. He does those things. God works in ways and places that only he can. There are things that God does that no one and nothing else can. But he also works in the everyday, in the mundane, in the simple, in the decisions and actions of people that don't even realize that what they are doing is playing into the work and plan of God. God is in control of all things at all times, including all of the events that led Paul before Felix. And so Felix finally responds after hearing both sides, and he responds in verse 22 of chapter 24. Having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, putting them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. 
I want to hear from him. I want to hear from the local authority that was there. I want more information. There's no record of Lysias ever coming down. This is political maneuvering. Though it would seem Felix had somewhat of an idea of how this actually played out because it says he has a rather accurate knowledge of the way. He knew something about these Christians and the conflict between the Christians and the Jews. He has a knowledge of, but not a belief in, the way. See, Felix is the kind of person who knew a little bit about everybody. He knew how to get everyone to get along. He knew enough to keep and lead and keep the people quiet and from starting riots and killing each other in the streets. He grew up from nothing. You don't have to get deep into his background, but if you want to do some research, he grew up from nothing and raised himself up and through his family and his own efforts in wartime, finds himself in this political position and he has maneuvered himself to get a lot of authority. He's got a lot of knowledge about the way. But that head knowledge about Christianity, it didn't translate into heart knowledge. He knew some stuff, but he didn't actually believe it. So you can know facts and figures. You can memorize scripture. You can know how to play Christian. But that doesn't mean you have a relationship with God. It doesn't mean you have put your faith in Jesus. You might be able to fool a bunch of, a bunch of church folks. You might be able to fool a bunch of people on social media. But it doesn't mean you can fool God. And one day, if you are faking it, you will have to answer for that fake faith before God. Head knowledge is good. Memorizing and knowing things about God. Knowing church history. Knowing scripture. These things are good and helpful. But if it's just head knowledge, if it's just facts and figures without a heart knowledge, without an experiential knowledge of who Christ is, then you just know facts and figures and not actually know the person of Jesus, and that will leave you one day in a place of condemnation. Felix decides here to keep Paul in custody. But he says you can have certain liberties, you can have visitors, you can kind of move a little bit more freely. Basically, he puts Paul under house arrest in Caesarea. And this gives Felix the opportunity to learn some more about Paul and specifically have some conversations about the way, Christianity. I love that it calls it the I think we should go back to the way. I think that's really, I like that. In verse 24, it says that Felix had a couple of conversations with Paul and with Felix's wife. In verse 24, it says, After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away, for the go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Felix and his wife, and says she's Jewish, they spend some time with Paul talking about faith in Jesus. Again, this is a big deal for Paul. Felix represents the most powerful authority that Paul has had a chance to preach the gospel to. It wasn't Caesar. But still, the influence and opinion of Felix mattered. And if he were to become a Christian, if he were to put his faith in the gospel, that would have a ripple effect throughout the area. But as Paul met with his Felix and his wife, Paul not only spoke about the gospel, but the implications of it. In verse 25, he talks about righteousness and self-control and judgment of sin. These are things that made people uncomfortable then and make people uncomfortable now. I was once told, somebody said to me one time, I really like the sermons that aren't so focused on sin and hell, the ones where I just kind of leave more happy. If we don't talk about sin and hell, if we don't consider the seriousness and severity of our situation without Christ, then the grand magnitude of the cross and the resurrection gets watered down to nothing. 
The reality of our standing on our own, the separation, the rebellion, the judgment that awaits us due to our sin, we can't ignore it. We can't just try and wish it away. We can't work or earn to get ourselves out of our predicament on our own. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, because of the perfect life, painful death, and powerful resurrection of Jesus that we can have forgiveness and new life and hope. We're about to enter into the season of Lent. It's a season modeled after the 40 days in the wilderness that Jesus endures at the beginning of his ministry. It's a time to intentionally evaluate, to give up and let go in places of our lives where we cling too tightly in order that we might make proper room for Christ in our lives. It's a season that reminds us, as it says in the song, what riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. For Felix and Drusilla, this message of, of righteousness and judgment, these things hit a little home, closer to home. Like I said, we don't want to get necessarily into the deep details of Felix's life. You can look it up for yourself. But the cliff notes is, that, is this. Drusilla is the daughter of King Herod Agrippa. We'll talk about him in the next couple of weeks. She's the third wife of Felix. And for them to get married, she had to abandon the man she was already married to. And at the time, she was a teenager, like 15. And Felix manipulated her into leaving her husband and marrying him. So things like self-control, righteousness, judgment for sin, these things were hitting a little close to home for this couple. And it's probably why Felix freaks out and sends Paul away. But Felix would continue. He gives some time and he would continue to see Paul because Though Rome was all about law and order and the rules, there is the old adage, money talks. And Felix would continue to summon Paul, waiting and expecting the day when Paul would try and bribe his way out of captivity. But it didn't happen. No matter how many times Paul was summoned, he never offered any money because he didn't have any. And because he has the character and will of God and because he knows what the plan and purpose of what he is enduring is. This continues for two years, up and through Felix's removal from his position. And ever the politician, always looking to make a deal and a favor to the Jewish leadership, Felix, when he exits his role, just leaves Paul in prison, making him the problem of the new governor, Festus. Now we have read about Paul being arrested and attacked and threatened and beaten. This is, none of this is new for him. But this one feels a little bit different. Because there's no actual charge. At this point, he's disconnected from the Jews. The Romans have him under lock and key. There's no real reason, other than Felix trying to protect his own interests, maybe, there's no real reason he's still a captive. Whatever the case and cause may be, Paul is a prisoner of the Romans. And while it might not be that bad of circumstances as he has been previously in, he's still a prisoner. I mean, think about it. He has spent much of the last 30 years of his life traveling, moving freely around the known world, and now he is trapped in one place. He's stuck. And you'd assume that his chances of getting out of the situation only get worse, worse with new leadership that has no relationship to him. Paul, it seems, is going to rot away in Caesarea. How do you endure the unknown? frustrating and the overwhelming. 
How do you endure the lack of clarity, the lack of security, the lack of stability? How do you move forward when you don't know where you're going, when you can't see in front of you and it feels like God is a million miles away? We do what I'm sure Paul was doing. We cling to the promises of God. When God spoke to Ananias in Acts 9 and told him, go find Paul, God told Ananias, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul hasn't had the chance to share the gospel with any kings yet. In chapter 23, when all this hoopla started, Jesus spoke to Paul and said, take courage, Paul. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Paul, be strong. Paul, be brave. Paul, have faith. You've spoken about me all over the place. You still have more to do in Rome. Jesus told Paul there was still work to be done. And if that's the case, it means he wasn't going to rot away in Caesarea forever. Have faith. Hold on a little bit longer. Because he sees you, and he hears you, and he knows what you're going through. He hasn't forgotten about you. He hasn't lost sight of you. He isn't ignoring you. He is with you, and he's for you. You're not alone. You're not left to your own devices. Though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't have to fear anything because he is with you. He is there to protect you and guide you. When we remember and we embrace the reality of who God is and what he has said in his word and what he has promised to those who are his children, we can endure whatever this world has to throw at us because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Life is hard and overwhelming and exhausting. As a pastor of this church, I know, I can look out here, and I know about a lot of the struggles and difficulties that are happening within our community, and I know that I only know a sliver of it. I know you're tired. I know that you're distraught. I know you're confused and angry and frustrated and sad and just out of words. Deuteronomy 31.8. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. 2 Corinthians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort from which we ourselves are comforted by God. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Romans 8.26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, 
a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Nahum 1.7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. If you are in a season of thriving and rejoicing, amen. Amen. I am so happy for you. Use this time to thank God and celebrate God and enjoy him and his word. And I encourage you to store up his word in your heart. Store up that truth. Rejoice in him. Remember who it is who has brought you through the dark times, who has put you on that mountaintop. Enjoy this season. If you are in a season of exhaustion and frustration and you feel overwhelmed and you are just tired and tired and lost, you can cry out to God. You can tell him that. You can bring those things to him. He wants you to bring those things to him. And I pray that like Jacob, when he wrestled the angel, you would wrap yourself around God and cling to him and do not let go. Cling to his word, cling to his promises, to the character and will of God that has not, does not, and will not change. In Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection, he purchased for us the right as the sons and daughters of God to go to him anytime with anything. And the God of all existence hears you, receives you, and cares about what you have to say. Paul is stuck as a prisoner. And as he is, he's left to just cling to the promises of Jesus. The thing that got him to the next day and the next day and the next day was the promises of Christ. You, Christian, have a whole book of the promises of God to cling to to get you to the next day. Embrace it and receive it and let the word of God be the soothing balm of Gilead. Let it cover the wounds and pains of this world. I'm not saying you're not going to have any. I'm not saying you're not going to endure them. But this, his word, his promises, his truth will soothe will comfort, because that's who our God is. He is the God of soothing and comfort. He is the good shepherd who will carry you when you're too exiled, too tired, when you are lost and confused and overwhelmed. He's coming for you. He's with you. You are not alone in this. We have seasons. All of us have seasons where we're stuck and we don't know what's coming next. Take another step and trust in who God is and trust in what he has for you, because you're not alone. Let's pray. tell us a lot about who you are. You reveal your character and your will to us in a lot of different ways, most clearly through Jesus and through your word. We have this resource, we have this great gift of your word to us. 
that tells us about how good you are and just and love and gracious and righteous. That you see all and you know all and you are all powerful. God, this world is so noisy and so overwhelming and so exhausting and sin feels like it wins way too often. And we get so dis so distraught. God, help us to be a people that can rest in you. That not just in our heads, but in our hearts and our very souls, know and trust that you are a refuge. That you are a protector, that you are a comforter, that you are the one who gives us life. We read about things like this where Paul is just stuck rotting away in prison, not knowing what tomorrow will bring, not knowing if he's ever going to get free, and just clinging to the promises that you've given him. God, you've promised us. You've promised us that one day Christ is going to come back, and the pain and the death and the suffering and all that's going to be done. And God, we long for that day. As we head into the season of Lent, we think about the the sacrifice Christ has made, we long all the more to have that day where we get to be with you and all of this is done and the uncertainty is done. And what stands before us is just eternity with you. But until that day comes, God, help us, give us more of you because we need more of you because we don't have this on our own. We can't do this on our own. You know that. That's why you gave us your word. That's why you gave us community. That's why you gave us yourself. That's why we have the Holy Spirit. All of that reveals and reminds us of how good you are. God, I pray that you would remind us again and again. That as we dwell on the gospel, as we embrace the gospel, that it would filter and remind us every day of the joy and love and grace and mercy that you have for us. God, as we go out into the world, as we deal with life, we need you, please. We need more of you. We can't have enough of you. Give us a hunger and thirst to know you more. Give us a hunger and thirst to know your word more, that we might store it up, that it would be that lamp and that light. That when we are overwhelmed, that when it seems like the storms and the waves are too high, that we have your truth in us that we can rest in and rely on. God, if this book, if this word truly is yours, then it's more than just words on a page. There is a supernatural element to it. There is a life-giving, life-changing, life-stabilizing element to it. God, help us to actually believe that and embrace that. Embrace you, more and more of you, know more and more of you, hear more and more of you, and find our rest and our direction in you. God, you have made us to be the lights of the world. We can't shine without you, so help us to shine and shine brightly. We thank you and praise you. Amen.